innovative, well-versed, entrepreneur, and client-centric. These are just a few words that I took away from my conversation with Josh Bennett. Josh is a certified financial planner that has a background of serving and helping families implement actionable financial advice. After spending some time at Charles Schwab and other wealth management firms, Josh decided to start his own innovative firm, Vincere Wealth. Focused on tech professionals and business owners, Josh provides extreme value to a niche industry and does so with a leading focus on innovation and value. Today, we talk about where Josh feels the industry is going and what got him to the point he is at today with Vincere Wealth. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Josh, thanks for taking some time to chat with us here today. Uh, I know you have a busy schedule, so appreciate you hopping on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So, you know, some things that we uh, I found you know interesting before we dive into the the true meat of the podcast and some of the the um, the, the questions there. Um, so, you're a uh, you're a triathlete. It sounds like how many triathlons have you done? Uh, how many? Like probably around uh, at least like half Ironmans around. Six, I believe, um, like triathlons in general. Um, too many to count at this point. <laughs> so the Ironmans, have you done a full Ironman yet? Uh, working on it. Haven't gotten there yet, but that's like the, the work in progress. That's great. Do you have a kind of a goal set out for that that we can all hold you accountable on? Uh, probably about, I'm, I'm thinking not this summer, but hopefully the summer after. Okay. So about a year and a half from now. Uh, dude, that is impressive. I give you mad props for that. Um, because you know, when I was at school at Arizona state, uh, they always had the Ironman in Tempe, uh, and all around Phoenix. And it was remarkable. They would start at 7am. And I remember that, you know, we'd be up and it'd be like 1130pm and people would still be crossing and they would stay there and say, you are an Ironman crossing at 1130. I mean, Good for you, man. I, uh, I I will be there cheering for you. That's something that I will I will live vicariously through you on. All right. Well, I'll, I'll hold you accountable to my cheerleading section. Then. Uh, all right. I'll be there. I'll be there. Make sure it's in a cool spot. Uh, I like to travel. Uh, uh, obviously. Yeah. Exactly. The uh, you know the other thing is is and and this is, I got I'm just I'm just intrigued by this. Uh, uh, you read 50 to 100 books per year. Now, do you read them or do you just scan through them? That's a lot of books. I mean, that's you know a book a week, basically. Yeah, I do read them, but I, I, I'll admit I cheat a little bit. So a lot of that is actually audiobooks too. So I'm a big uh, audiophile when it comes to like audiobooks. Okay. Sitting in the car, commutes, things like that. I usually listen to audiobooks. Um, and so that gives me kind of a, a leg up and getting more books throughout the year. Okay. What, and that's, that's not cheating my, my book, uh, because that's how I read as well is through audible. Um, it will, are you, what speed do you put it on to read that quickly? I mean, or is you just have, do you just have a long commute? Are you on like two times speed of the book or you read it at the normal, let them read it to you at the normal pace? I uh, usually do like one and a half times. Um, right. can't like if, if it's two times, I, I can't follow it as well, but yeah, one and a half times is I think a good speed because usually they're pretty slow anyways if you, speed them up it's like perfect for listening to all right so uh, i'm going to ask you best book you read in 2019 do you have one oh, that's it i know I, you weren't ready uh, for this one uh so this is gonna probably show what kind of a nerd i am but um i read a, a kind of a fantasy novel called the name of the wind that was really good um it's like a, a three-part series of the first book 
but it was a really good book, and I'm, so I'm getting ready to start the, the second one in the trilogy, so it's, nice. I'd say that's, that's probably the best one I've read. Uh, that was pro- probably one of the few like fiction books I read, which is probably why it stood out. But <laughs> you got to mix in fiction books. you got to mix in all different types of books to kind of stay stay uh, moving forward. And, and I just want to touch on this briefly because this is something that I would love to take part of with you, uh, is that you, you've been to 47 of the 50 states, but now you're trying to have a beer, a local beer, in each of the states. How is that coming along? And I, uh, if, you need a, if you need a friend, uh, I'm more than happy to help out on that side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's coming along slowly but surely. Yeah, this is the so I, a job I had like right out of college. I was traveling all the time, and so I got. And it's been a bucket list item to hit all fifty states. Um, and so once I started getting close to that, I was like, okay, what's my next challenge? And so I was, I was you know, obviously I like beer, so it's like, yeah, all right. And they're you know craft brews are a big thing nowadays, so it's like, all right, I'm gonna have a beer from each state, like brewed in each state, while visiting that state. So that's kind of my next challenge. But, yeah, I think I'm at about 20 there last time I checked. But still got, right. still got a ways to go on that one. All right. Well, uh, good luck on that. I, I think that's an awesome. I love that idea. Um, and that's a, that's a way to kind of uh, be motivated to travel around this country, which is a beautiful country to go see. Um, yeah, and I, I figure that's a way uh, to get around cheating and saying, like, if I drive through a state, then that counts. <laughs> yeah, you gotta stop and then have a local brew. I mean, that it, you, exactly. you have to. It's it's a must now. Exactly. So that's that's the goal now. All right. Awesome. Uh, well, let's dive into this. I'm really excited. I, I you know we we met uh, a little while ago, and I've always been impressed with with what you've done and, and your background. And I think that you know I, I'm interested to to dive into kind of where you see the industry. You're coming from a different perspective of innovation and how to build a practice and it's different and i think that that's always good for our listeners to to have that perspective um and and i always like to start out these conversations with a simple and similar question and it's from your perspective really uh what is the state of our industry the ri industry today right if you were to give a state of the union uh for the ri industry what would be you know, your top three points that you would want to get across in that state of the union for the industry today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is that it's just an exciting time, especially for the RIA industry specifically, just because of technology and just the fact that technology has really driven down the complication of starting an RIA and also the complication of managing an RIA, that it makes it really accessible for a lot of really good financial planners, especially like ones that maybe kind of feel stuck at like a broker dealer or something of that nature where they're wanting to really provide high level value to their clients and just um, have been kind of scared to start an IRA in the past. Now it's really accessible thanks to technology and just driving the complexity and those costs down. Um, so I think that's, that's really exciting for like our space right now, but also, in terms of the State of the Union, I think there's a, you know, a lot of cool things happening with, again, with technology and what that allows you to do, uh, aside from just you know, giving the opportunity to financial planners to really actually break into the RA space. It's also allowing RA owners currently to really provide even better value to their clients, just because if you're able to leverage technology and leverage outsourcing these things to free up your time, well, then that's just more time that you can dedicate towards driving real value with your clients. And I think that's a really powerful thing and a really exciting thing for our industry right now. Yeah, and I think that that is 
also kind of that's the 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 state of it, and it's in and it's a state of change, right? I mean, it it, it the industry is of of it's, it's changing, uh, and I think some people think that change means that. Um, they look at it as a bad thing. It's just evolving with the times, uh, which is really exciting, right? Everything you said is evolving of, of the times of setting up your RA to utilizing technology, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that seems to be, you know, the headline for the industry is uh, a, it's a state in change. Uh, do you agree there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a state in change both from the RA side, like the actual just technology side and, um, actually running the RA, but I also think it's a change in progress from the consumer side as well. So, like, especially with, as you see, millennials progressing and becoming more affluent um, as they just kind of progress in their career and kind of see, frankly, get some of their student loan debt paid off and things like that, you're seeing them to be becoming more of a powerhouse in driving the industry. And that's why you see a lot of these robo-advisors and other things coming out because they're kind of demanding more and they're demanding better options and things than what may have been there in the past, like just the broker dealer just sent you in some investments that may or may not be uh, the right investments for you and just kind of, frankly, kind of forget about you as a client. Like millennials tend to want more than that. And so you're seeing that forcing a lot of transparency in kind of this age of Amazon where you can see ratings everywhere, prices everywhere. And, um, I think that's driving a lot of cool change just from the consumer's perspective as well and forcing RAs to be creative to really add value. And um, I think that's going to have a lot of positive impacts on what consumers are able to get out of the financial community. That's such a good point that I think is overshadowed so often, um, at least inside of our circles, right, of what this change means for the client, right? The client is going to win with this because we are all, as RIAs, looking to compete to get new clients. And in order for us to compete, we're going to have to differentiate. And the way that we're going to differentiate is by the value and the services that we're providing, which means that ultimately the end winner of all this is going to be the client, which is an exciting time, uh, meaning that we are really client-centric and all about them because everything we're going to do is to provide more for them. uh, And they're going to win out of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's one, it's, kind of abiding by the fiduciary model for our areas anyways, but also it's a just frankly just good business sense to really add value and drive the best results for clients. And that's what's going to kind of help you win in business, but also help keep you compliant too. So it's a win-win. Right, right. As compliance keeps going up, we're going to have to keep doing more to stay compliant, um, but it's going to be make us look more at our business and make it more efficient, et cetera, which is always a win. And you know, speaking of change, you know, recently uh, there's been some, you know, the news of, of two behemoths in our industry um, really coming together and consolidating with Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade. And I think that this is kind of the, the uh, it's the headline that everybody's going to talk about for a while as the kind of the everything settles down from that uh, consolidation. Uh, but just the idea, right? You know, we're still a little bit away from them finalizing everything. But the idea of these two firms coming together to make one and make a behemoth, I mean, they will still be probably the third largest uh, custodial assets wise of um, of the of the players out there. You think about Fidelity and Pershing, et cetera. But they're going to be a much bigger player. And you spent some time at Charles Schwab. And, and I think that, you know, from the inside perspective, I'd be interested to know your perspective of, of Schwab, uh, now that you're on the outside, as an innovator 
because now they're going to be a much bigger player and have a bigger voice within, especially the RIA space. Um, how do you view them as an innovator uh, within the industry, given your time there? Yeah, so I think they definitely are an innovator in terms of what they've done to try and drive down prices to consumer. Um, and I think what they've done with like their Charles Schwab Bank and things like that are um, really innovative in terms of kind of driving different options and forcing some change in the industry. Like, I mean, when Schwab was originally started, they were starting in a time frame where, you know, a trade would cost $200 and now they're free uh, because of some of these innovations that Schwab has made. When it comes to kind of the advice side of things, I still think they, you know, frankly have a ways to go just because they're still in that sort of broker-dealer suitability mindset. And, you know, frankly, they have shareholders that they have to abide or, you know, kind of, they have shareholders that they need to provide for, basically. And so, therefore, they still are kind of obligated to sell Schwab products, which, you know, I think is going to lower some choices for consumers in the long run as you see this kind of behemoth get created because you're going to have sort of less options for consumers when it comes to that broker-dealer space. But that being said, I think it actually presents a great opportunity for RIAs just because I know a lot of RIA owners right now are having a little bit of a panic attack because we rely on Schwab and TD and other custodians for places to store our assets for our clients in. By having now this behemoth, there's a little bit of worry about competition and what that's going to do to an RA's business model. But I think that's really actually provides an opportunity because as Schwab grows and gets bigger, even though they're driving a lot of really innovative products, there's still a huge opportunity for RAs to really differentiate on the client service side away from the product side of things just because, and you can also leverage the products that they develop by implementing them for your clients. So if you're both using their creative products like Schwab Bank and things like that while also having a greater client service model, that presents you a really good opportunity to drive value and um, for your, the clients that are in your book. Just, you know, because... One thing with the, with the like the you know model that Schwab has is they have you know for example when I was a financial advisor there I had about 400 different clients and you know I don't care how good your technology is or anything like that there's just no way to provide really deep value for 400 clients mm-hmm. and so even if they have innovative products that you can leverage if you're able to provide that deep value to your clients you're still going to stand out as an RIA despite. Um, than having just more assets, more resources to kind of compete against you, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, because what I've always given a lot of respect to Schwab for is how they've been able to walk that fine line of being a retail, uh, having retail clients and RA clients. They are one of the firms that have done a really good job with that. Um, Because even when advisors get really upset, they're really not that upset because they're getting served so well. Um, And I think that you're right. One of the things that this does challenges the uh you know now they have a lot more power to kind of compete maybe with ras but also ras now have less uh, ability or control of holding them to the fire to to get stuff done right because there's less options to go to you can't say hey i have assets at td and i have assets at schwab 
And Schwab, if you don't help me with this, then I'm just going to take all my assets to TD. You don't have that kind of control anymore, and it becomes a little bit more uh, monopolistic uh, with fewer players. Um, But hopefully what you have is that I believe Schwab is one of the best firms in terms of service to their clients in terms of RA clients. And, and they have a great servicing model. And I believe that TD has a really forward-thinking technology model. And you bring those together, and that's pretty powerful. And like you said, that, that can provide a lot of solutions for advisors. Um, but I will say, if any advisor thinks that that's going to happen right away, uh, it's crazy because now you have just a behemoth of bureaucratic sheets that you have to get through uh, and check marks in order to get anything done, which means it's just going to move a little slower uh, but hopefully the power of two uh, means that what they do deliver is really, really big and powerful. Yeah, I mean, a prime example of this is like when I was working at Schwab, they had just bought Options Express, which is a really great innovative technology in the options space that I'm sure a lot of advisors have heard of it. Um, but, I mean, even just that technology itself took years to integrate into Schwab's platform. And, I mean, frankly, I don't even know if it's, even to this day, if it's still fully integrated. So when you look at like behemoths like Schwab versus TD Ameritrade, integrating all those technologies and all those uh, personnel, aside from them possibly having to go through, you know, trust regulations or antitrust regulations and things like that, yeah, it, it's going to take years. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's going to yeah. take a while. And it's going to take a while for us to see the fruits of that, right? I mean, it's just going to take a little bit of time. Yeah, it's going to the fruits or any uh, downsides. Either way, it's going to, you know, RAs have, especially RAs that are, are more nimble, have plenty of time to kind of adjust their business model and uh, kind of prepare for whatever comes their way. And I think that's to your point, right? That's what still allows the RA to be very much more differentiated and value-driven towards their end client, right? And and you have to take that, you have to take that innovation and harness it and go and, and implement it. And, and so that really gets to... You know, my next thought or question is, have advisors fully adopted innovation? And has it yet to really infiltrate uh, their thought processes in terms of how they build their business um, in terms of, because there is so much innovation happening in our space. There's so much opportunity, but have advisors really accepted that fully yet? And where are we on that curve? Are we in the inning one? Are we in inning eight? Um, What are your thoughts there? I don't think we're necessarily in inning eight, but I don't think we're in inning one either. I think we're probably somewhere in the middle. Like you do have a lot of advisors that have been, I mean, there's just like any kind of new technology. You have the early adopters, you have the late adopters and the kind of normal people in between. But that being said, I think we're still kind of at the forefront, like closer to probably say inning three, um, where you have a lot of financial advisors that have started to adopt it, but you know, something I've noticed through working with a lot of financial advisors, and I'm sure you can relate to this, is a lot of financial advisors are financial planners or financial advisors first. They may have uh, come into starting an RA as a financial planner because that's what they really excel at. And many don't come in because they want to be a business owner. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a big gap there, and that's what causes a lot of financial advisors to kind of have the stigma of being slow to change technology, slow to adapt to new technologies. It's just that they're really good at financial planning and serving their clients, but they may just not feel confident or not know what business strategies to implement and may not take the time to want to learn new technologies and things like that because they're busy serving their clients and doing the things that they kind of got in the industry for. So I think there's, you know, a lot of advisors that are 
adopting, but I still think there's a ways to go for advisors to really start adopting technology. Is that, in your mind, is that changeable, that concept of them going from getting in the business for what they love and ultimately converting into being a business owner? Yeah, I think it's definitely changeable. Um, I think, and I think a lot of advisors, one, are going to be forced to, <laughs> to do that whether they want to or not, just because, especially like, you know, talking about Schwab and TD, they're going to need to be forced to operate more like a business just to make sure they're staying relevant in the industry. But also they're going to need, that's kind of what their clients are going to demand, kind of talking about millennials and um, them becoming more of a force in the industry. Millennials like technology. They like having speed. They like all these things that technology brings. And advisors are going to need to adopt that into their business model if they're going to want to stay relevant as millennials become more and more of a powerhouse in the industry from the consumer side of things. Yeah. And as you were kind of talking about the ability of like why they got in the business and then, you know, they didn't get in the business to build a business. They got in the business to do financial planning, which is two drastically different things. We have to be clear on that. There are some people that got in the business to build a business of financial planning, right? But that's not the norm. Um, it, it, it got my mind thinking kind of to like doctors and I never like to, to compare advisors to doctors, but, uh, with doctors, a lot of doctors get in the business or get into practicing medicine because they want to save lives. They really enjoy, you know, being an orthopedic surgeon. They really love heart surgery. They love brains, whatever it is. That's what they love. That's their practice. That's their financial planning. But they also have a business, but they're not, they're, never nece- they're not necessarily great business owners, right, or builders or runners. They love the practice of medicine. They don't love building a business. Um, and they'll just get new clients because they want to just do more of the surgeries um, or the, being a pediatrician or whatever it is. Um, and what you've seen in that industry is now you start to see the conglomerates really getting everybody under the wings, right? Like here in Atlanta, you, know, you have some behemoth med- medical practices like Piedmont Hospital and Northside, and all the doctors used to have their individual practice, and now they're all going underneath the, the behemoth because they know how to run the business, they provide scalability, which I- I'm not yet a believer that there's going to be, I mean, there's going to be consolidation in our industry. I don't know if it gets to that level, um, but does it in your mind? I mean, that, that's kind of, it seems like that's where we're, you know, we're having the conversation, that that's the preemptive way of where it goes. I mean, I think in our industry, there will always be space for kind of lifestyle practice and people that don't want to be part of a behemoth and don't want to really necessarily run like a you know, $1 billion RAA where they need to have an efficient business model. There will always be space for that. Like Where I think we differentiate from doctors is that you know we just don't have to deal, like, this, this may sound kind of intuitive to a lot of RAAs, but we don't have to deal with nearly the regulations that uh, hospitals do and doctors do, and you don't have to deal with the bureaucracy of like insurance. You just work directly with your clients in in your regulator, and really that you know if if you're running a pretty simple business, say you're running a lifestyle practice with a hundred clients, that's not going to be very complex, and you don't necessarily need an efficient business. You can still survive by just having that model. It may not you may be working way more hours than you want to be, or something like that, but you can still survive. So I don't think that's going to, there's going to be kind of that forced consolidation that you see in the medical industry. Mm-hmm. I think there will still be some of that because you'll find, like, I think we're in that transition period where starting RAA has become so easy that you're starting to see a lot of people that think they want to start RAAs and start it and then realize they hate actually running a business and are much better just as financial planners and want to stick to that. 
And then you'll see, I'm sure a lot of those kind of get consolidated into more of these RA models where they have just kind of like the umbrella company that does all the back-end services. And then the RAs can kind of operate independently on their own brand, but still uh, have most of the back-end taken care of. So they're just basically serving their clients. I think that's going to be a bigger model here in the future, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be the only option like you see in kind of the medical field. Yeah, no, that that's a fair. I I do agree with that. I, I'm not a I'm not a firm believer that there's going to be no space uh, for independent uh, because I, I think that the independent route is still so valuable and I think it's such a a need a necessity. I, I don't see the same consolidation. It's just an interesting kind of uh, a path that we just to keep an eye on. And you know, as we talk about, you know, I, I want to spend a you know a couple more questions, but then I want to get into buy sell. In your mind, you know, we talk about innovation, we talk about utilizing technology, we talk about delivering value. Um, yeah, and what in your mind is the difference between a great financial advisor or planner or wealth manager, however you want to utilize that title, and just a good one in your mind? I think it really boils down to the value that you provide your clients. So when I look at like financial planning and kind of serving clients, there's all these components that they rely on you for, whether you realize it or not. And money has such a big impact on people's lives that, you know, I think for a lot of us as financial advisors, we can have just as big an impact as like someone's doctor or things like that that are also, you know, very intimate things in people's lives where like, for example, like, I'm sure every advisor that listens to this has had a client go through a divorce that they're, you're basically holding your hand or that through deaths in the family, through all these life events that have realistically nothing to do with money, but also a lot to do with money. You're helping them through all these different situations. And, you know, some advisors will just kind of brush that off and be like, you know, jump right into estate planning and, you know, let's set up this trust or let's, you know, make sure we call your life insurance and, dump right into the money piece of those things. But, and I think that is what we classify as like a good advisor is someone who just does the money well. A great advisor is someone that does everything well, like manages the emotions of your clients, like helping them, counsel them through, you know, volatile markets and making sure that they're sticking to their goals, but also, you know, being a helping hand and lending ear when they're going through a hard time in their life. Like, for example, if, if someone comes in and says like, you know, my husband or my wife passed away, don't jump into the money. Like a great advisor will jump into the emotion and, and really care about their clients and walk them through that whole transition, both from a, you know, being a helping hand, being like a listening ear as opposed to just looking at the money. Um, and I think that's one of the things that really is going to be a differentiator from a good versus great advisor. I, I love that. I mean, that is such like a, a, a a simple but valuable point, right? It's like when you're helping someone go through a loss of a, of a spouse or, or a parent or whoever it is, it's like you may have an hour-long meeting just talking to them about the EQ side of things, like why, how are they feeling, like what are, I mean, walking them through and having a therapy session and then you end the meeting and you didn't even talk about money and you have to have another hour-long meeting. That is an advisor that is focused on the client uh, beyond 
uh, investment management and beyond the money. I think that that is such like a, a va- valuable point to take away is that that you have those conversations, which means that you better create efficiencies and you better create processes and you better utilize an effective tech stack to allow you to have more of those conversations and not feel like you're getting bogged down and behind, right? You need to create more time to where you can have more time to have those conversations and you don't need to let, necessarily let that happen with a a negative thing in the life of your client, like a death, you should be having those types of conversations all the time because that's what builds deep, meaningful, valuable relationships with your client. Exactly. Like I heard somebody say that, I think this is a quote that stuck with me that, um, you know, handling the money in terms of like working with your clients, that's kind of a necessary component where handling the, the emotions and really listening to your clients and kind of coaching them through these life changes, like that's the important stuff. I think that that's really stuck with me. And I think that's, something that every advisor can take away is like, this is what you should be focusing on. This is how you're going to really differentiate yourself in a, you know, changing markets um, is really having that kind of emotional intelligence and really working with your clients, both on the financial side and doing that well, but also on the emotional side and doing that well. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. All right. Two, two last questions quickly to run through, because I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, sure. First is what's one thing as you're running your RIA business, what's the kind of the one main thing that uh, hopefully you don't aren't staying up at night, but if you had to pick something that could keep you up at night uh, about running the business, what is that today for you? Uh, for me, it's, it, it is the fee compression in our industry. Uh, so one thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, I, I personally work with a lot of millennials in the industry and, you know, I have a lot that have really adopted and really seen the the value of paying a higher fee for that kind of added value that I've been talking about. So I've really seen some millennials that have that, but I still see some that are kind of have been kind of conditioned by the marketing of Wealthbox or not Wealthbox, Wealthfront and Betterman, some of these robo advisors out there. And, you know, you hear from them like, oh, you, you charge 1%, like a uh, can't, can't pay that. Like you, sh- you shouldn't be charging that much, even if there's added value over a robo advisor. Um, I think that's one of the things that definitely keeps me up at night is that we're kind of fighting against what I would call kind of not necessarily bad marketing, but I think untruthful marketing that's leading consumers down kind of a wrong path and not necessarily choosing value and just choosing what's cheapest. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the things that keeps me up at night in our industry is just is definitely that. That is a fair. That is a fair challenge. That would be a driver of, of keeping you up at night. Um, all right. So to wrap this up before we get into buy sell, and this is the I asked two questions to everybody on the show. The first one that we asked at the beginning of the show, and then this one at the end is sitting in your seat. Take out the crystal ball. Um, what does our industry look like ten years from now? Yeah, I think I think there's gonna, like like we talked about. I think there's definitely gonna be some con- consolidation from the RA perspective. I definitely think there's gonna be some consolidation from the broker dealer perspective. But I think there's going to be a bigger market share of RAs in the industry. So I think consumers are gonna kind of demand that fiduciary responsibility, and you're gonna see more RAs, more lifestyle practices, and things start to come to fruition because of that. And I think, I think you'll actually hit a cap or plateau on the fee compression because, I mean, you're starting to see a lot of these robo-advisors that have been driving down fees starting to really struggle from their business model. Like, I was reading an article yesterday that uh, LVEST is struggling now because, and, like, getting a lot of pressure from their investors 
struggling financially. And so I think you're going to see a, a switch to more of the, you know, those consumers demanding more of that value in addition to um, just lower fees. So I think, I think we're going to kind of see a reversion back to, I won't say the old model, but <laughs> that, that very high touch model, like that high service model. Yeah. Well, I mean, anyway, I mean, you you know it just as well as anybody, right? In this industry, the pendulum swings, right? You go from a great market to a recession, you try to get back to equal, and then you go back and you have a bubble again. And it's the same thing with, you know, the, the types of uh, participants in the industry, right? You have it swing to these low cost only providers, and then, you, then it kind of tries to get back to equilibrium, and you go all the way back to this other side of higher cost, and then it gives an opportunity for you know, lower costs to come back in. So uh, we're always trying to find equilibrium and we never settle on it. So that's the beauty of, uh, of a free market. Exactly. Uh, so I think it's, it's going to be an interesting next 10 years, that's for sure. It will be fun. There'll be a lot of opportunity. There'll definitely be a lot of challenges and, and there's things that are under uh, underground right now that are going to emerge that we don't even uh, have any idea about, which will be fun to, uh, to, to navigate. Um all right, so let's move into my my uh, my my attempt at a uh, little CNBC on this podcast, right? With buy sell, um, four statements. Just ask you if you buy, if you agree, sell, if you disagree. Maybe give one or two sentences of why you're leaning one way or the other, um, and we'll see if you're a bull, a bear, or you're kind of just a buy, you know, a holder right now uh, in the market. And, and I, I don't I don't like to position these in any way to make you a bull or a bear. So we'll just see where it goes. Um, all right. All right. First one, buy or sell. Financial advisors should budget more than 10% of their overall kind of budgeting for the year towards technology and innovation development. Definite buy. Do you, why? Well, the main reason is, to me, a financial advisor should spend the majority of their time either with prospects or with clients. That should be where they're dedicating their time and technology is allowing you to do that these days and that's i think why you should really invest in that that way you can deliver more value to your clients okay i love it and this next one's going to be interesting because you mentioned uh at schwab where you're managing 400 clients um buy or sell given recent innovations and future innovations that we don't know of yet uh financial advisors will be able to provide uh white glove service to more than 200 families per advisor I would say hold. I think they'll be able to. I think the question will be whether they should. And really in asking that question to themselves, are they really providing the added value with that free time or should they just go deeper on their current relationships? I think that's a great point. It's a fair point. And I think that that's the route, right? You have two options. Do you, do you try to figure out efficiencies utilizing technology to deliver more value to more people uh, in a more efficient way? Or do you use technology and efficiencies to deliver more value and deeper value to your current set of clients to differentiate yourself? And, and that's just a decision from a business side of what way, what type of business you want to be. And I think that both avenues will have success if, if built the right way. Yes, exactly. Uh, buy or sell. The services that financial advisors provide to their clients will extend beyond investment management and financial planning within the next 10 years. 100%. <laughs> what, what type of services do you think are going to be involved in, in, from a financial advisor standpoint? Well, I, think, I mean, I think like more of that financial coaching and more of that 
you know, kind of like I was talking like the emotional intelligence aspect from a service perspective will become more and more involved with financial planners just because, again, that's a way you're going to have to differentiate against the pure products of the industry. Heck, I mean, there's a there's an opportunity for you on, on, on battling fee compression is that you can have an a la carte service for uh, psychology services where you meet with your clients on a monthly basis to have them sit and discuss their financial concerns and you're just a psychologist That's uh, and you can charge for that. That's how you can get around fee compression. Uh, yeah, exactly. You can even <laughs> hire, a, hire a psychologist or a marriage counselor or any of these other things that could uh, help differentiate you too. I love that. I love that. Come to us. We'll help that. We'll, we'll provide those. We'll, we'll have those conversations for you, with you. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll coach you through them. Um, all right. Last one. Buy or sell. There will be, and this is interesting given you brought up LVEST and some of the robo-advisor platforms. Buy or sell. There will, be, there will still be independent robo-advisor options outside those offered by custodians, whether currently offered or future offered seven years from today. Yeah, definitely. I think there will, will be. I think there is going to be a shakeup in, in them and how they look. But I mean, there's still, for even today, there's still independent ETFs and things like that away from the custodians and some of the bigger players out there. So I think that'll still be there. I just don't think they'll be, you'll see it be like venture backed. I think they'll be more grassroots grown rope advisors. Yeah. So it's kind of like you'll have the State Street and BlackRock as your ETF providers. You'll have some other people come in and they'll fizzle out of being unique individual ETF providers, but just the sheer scale of like the Betterment Wealthfront will make it hard for the others to come in and, and, and take those down. Um, yeah. I think that's interesting. So it seems like you're you're a bull. I mean, you had three buys and a and a hold. So that makes you bullish. Uh, which you know, not that we don't like bears on the show, but bulls are always better in every aspect of, of the markets, right? Uh, well, good. Well, I appreciate that. I want to wrap up, let you get back to your day, and the listeners get back to their day as well. I want to give you ninety seconds to or so uh, just to give a closing thought. Something that maybe the advisor can take back to their firm today and implement to push their firm forward. Uh, and then I'll give a closing thought and we'll wrap this thing up. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things advisors can do to really implement in their practice today to drive their business forward. And this kind of goes back to my philosophy on, you know, what you should be doing with most of your business is leveraging technology, leveraging outsourcing to spend more time with your clients, more time with prospects. So for example, like I'm a managing partner in an outsourcing firm called Valenta BPO, where within a week you could have like a virtual assistant or virtual paraplanner that could be taking data entry off your plate into e-money or to write capital, things like that, or precise FP, like any of those like data entry things you could have taken off your plate immediately. You could also leverage softwares like Benjamin where you could have your scheduling done for you and all these kind of really easy tasks that just take a lot of time for advisors, you can easily just get those off your plate and be able to drive more business, drive more or deeper conversations with your clients all within about a week of just, you know, making the investment and just, you know, taking that step and that leap forward. And I think that's something that advisors should do almost immediately to really drive their business forward. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer of that. I think that, you know, from just our research on our own, uh, multiple research that's out there, you know, by Michael Kitsis and others, um, it, it's shown in just in conversations, right? That's our research is just having conversations with advisors that we are spending over 30% of our time doing menial mundane tasks that are needed in a relationship, but don't 
don't kind of uh, don't enhance the relationship. And and you got to figure out how you can take those off your plate so you can have, you know, even if it's fifteen percent or twenty percent more time to enhance a relationship. That ROI, I mean, if you can't see that ROI, that's that's true value to your firm and to your clients, uh, which is a win-win yeah, I mean, for everybody. Think about how many more conversations you could have either with clients or with prospects if you had uh, a third of your day back. Yeah. I mean, geez. Yeah. I mean, you can have tons of calls uh, and, and deeper calls and not calls about, hey, where's your paperwork? But Hey, what, how's your family? You know, what did y'all do for Thanksgiving? What are your kids doing? How do they feel about what everything's going on? How can I help them? Um, those are, those are valuable conversations. I think that's a really good point. Um, so for me, my, my closing thought is this, I, I think it's fair to make the assumption that we understand the differences between niche and generalist, right? When we start out as financial advisors, we tend to bring in anybody and everybody that will allow us to manage their money. That's the way that this business is. We are desperate to help people and to begin building our book of business. We may have a desire to build a niche type of business down the road, but ultimately, whether it is a blue-collar worker, a business owner, or a teacher, early on, we take them and help guide them to their financial goals. As our industry continues to undergo many changes, a state of change, it is going to be paramount that advisors begin to narrow their focus. It's similar to building any business. If you try to do everything, you end up doing nothing really great and likely you end up not staying around as a business much longer. But for financial advisors, having a niche and having a focus is going to be key to differentiate among the noise and to have an opportunity to really scream and shout from that mountain peak, your company differentiator. Whether your niche is the specific client you focus on, and that means going beyond just a specific minimum, or the investment focus you have, or the services you offer, it doesn't matter. I believe you need a niche in a new world in our industry where being different is not a nice to have, but a must have. Clients are going to constantly push their advisors to deliver more value, services, and servicing. And in order to show that all of these are being delivered, you must do something a bit different than the competitor down the street. And maybe the relationship you build with your clients is a true differentiator for you. And that will be great. But if it is, then go all in on that and ensure everyone in your office is all in on that as well. Because going all in on your true differentiator will be the key to long-term success in this ever-changing environment. Josh Bennett, thank you so much for taking some time uh, and sharing your wisdom with, uh, with our listeners here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that was awesome. And everybody out there listening, thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you took away one thing to push you and your firm forward tomorrow. And we'll be back in your ear in a couple weeks. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. Your heart's desire.